Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for your word and for your message to us. May you open our hearts to hear what you have to say to each of us this day. Amen. I wonder what you've been taught in your life about anger, or maybe what you've learned about anger in your life. And I differentiate between those two, having been taught and having learned, because I think there can be some distinction there. It seems that teaching often results from instruction, but learning can come from more than that. It can come from observation and experience. And I might even narrow my question of your curiosity or my, my curiosity of your experience within the church and instruction and experiences within the church about anger. For many Christians, especially American Protestants, the exposure to anger in the church has been focused on an instruction to avoid it, perhaps part of a teaching of what it means to be a good Christian even. And these instructions often come right out of scripture. The book of Proverbs, the Old Testament book of what I would call wise quips for godly moral living, for instance, has several verses about anger, like Proverbs 14.29, which reads, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but one who has a hasty temper exalts folly. I love that one. Or Proverbs 14.17, a quick-tempered person does foolish things. And there are several other verses, either referring to angry people as fools or otherwise ridiculing the angry ones. You know, though, it's interesting. When the Bible has a lot to say about something, whether it's fear or anxiety or money, or in this case, anger, there's an almost direct correlation to the human experience. When the Bible has a lot to say about something, it's probably because it's something we all might face or struggle with or experience in some way. The problem, though, is that the church has historically taken topics like anger or fear and essentially said that they have no place in the church, since throughout the scriptures we read these instructions to avoid them. So in the church, we hear, don't be afraid, and translate that into fear is not okay. Rather than acknowledging the reality of the emotions in our lives, we instead pre pretend like the church is a place where they somehow don't exist. It's a fear-free zone. It's an anger-free zone. But the reality is that what we've done by reducing scripture to a handy phrase that can be painted on a wooden board and hung in the kitchen is that we've sent the message that something complex is simple and that there's no room for nuance or discussion. Don't be angry. Certainly don't show anger at church and, and most definitely don't share about your anger at church and absolutely don't talk about mom's anger or dad's anger or little brother's anger at church. Church is where we dress nicely and sit quietly. So where did this come from? Over the past several years, I've spent a great deal of time, one might call it a little bit of an obsession, looking into the history of the American Protestant Church and the evolution over time, specifically related to the image of the family and expectations for appearances. 
The frightening observation is the high number of people, particularly people who were raised in the church in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, when church attendance was nearly universal, who, upon leaving the church in the subsequent decades, have described in some way the hypocrisy of the, either the church or their own family as the motivation. Specifically, it was the feeling that family behaved a certain way at home, but then felt the need to present a perfect image at church. This obviously isn't a universal experience, especially not a shared experience among many people who go to church today from that demographic, but it is the experience of many people, especially people who have walked away. And we're seeing it happen again today. And, and actually, we've been seeing it probably throughout the modern era of the church. But especially today, we're seeing it more among the, the younger generations. In fact, in Friday's New York Times, there was a fantastic opinion piece by Lee Stein titled The Empty Religions of Instagram, in which she writes about so many of her generation who have no religious affiliation, 22% of millennials, the so-called religious nuns. You've heard this phrase, perhaps. And she points out that while the reasons are varied, so many of them leave because of the failure of the church to address social issues or what one of the people that she talks to coins the hypocrisy of the church. Now, I, I commend this article to you because there's some very good news and opportunity in the article as well as the concern that she points out. So read it through to the very end. Part of being honest and living in a way where we bring our whole selves to church, our range of emotions, our thoughts, our fears, our experiences, our vulnerabilities, our desires, and even our doubts means that we look to scripture. We look to scripture for guidance without feeling the shame of a church that questions our experiences or judges our condition or who we are. When the church simply says, don't be angry, and people experience anger, and, and when people are afraid to be honest with others and with God about their emotions, our faith or maybe our participation in church becomes inauthentic. Let's consider anger through that lens then, a lens of, of learning and of recognizing that this emotion is something we all have the capacity to experience, and that if we're being honest, we all feel at times. Jesus uses his strongest language against anger in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verse 22, when he says, I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. Upon close examination of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, and I encourage you to look at it, it's apparent that Jesus is teaching not just about the emotion of anger, but the ramifications of anger, and particularly interpersonal anger that lingers. Specifically, Jesus instructs us to seek reconciliation with those against whom we harbor anger. Jesus says, so when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. This is Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Friends, this is part of why we pass the peace of Christ in worship, and especially before we celebrate communion. 
We don't emphasize this in our tradition, but in some traditions, there are specific instructions that you should not receive the elements of communion before reconciling yourself to others, particularly those with whom you are worshiping. Jesus is essentially saying in this section of scripture that if anger toward another person is causing us to have separation from God, we need to seek that reconciliation. But the key here is that idea of separation from God. If our anger is getting between us and God, if our anger is hindering our ability to bring God's love into the world, then this is sin. If our anger leads us to sin, we need to do the hard work of avoiding the sin. This involves looking at how the anger is impacting us and our relationships with others and the world. We have to make decisions about how we are going to try and control our situation to avoid a sinful response to the anger. In the letter to the Ephesians, the admonition against anger is connected even more closely to sin. In Ephesians 4, 25 through 27, we read, So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. The focus again is on sin rather than on the emotion of anger itself. If we are seeking in our lives to reject all that is sinful, and if our anger leads us to sin, then we should seek to remedy that anger. But the warning in Ephesians to avoid sin is realistic and that it involves a recognition that anger is part of our human condition. By recognizing the risk of anger leading to sin, we can prepare ourselves to experience anger with an eye toward how that anger is impacting our relationships. Focus then, again, is on the sin and on our response to our emotions and experiences. Is our anger or any other emotion, our ambition, our desires, or really anything else in our lives separating us from God? This is what we want to be looking at. This is what sin is. We don't talk about sin very much, not directly. But one way to look at sin is the things in our lives, the thoughts, the actions, the inactions that separate us from God. So you see, it isn't anger, but rather it is that separation that we are trying to avoid. But a consequence of trying so hard to eliminate anger from our good Christian selves, and especially from our churches, is that it actually puts us at odds with Jesus. And the contemporary church has in many ways been at odds with Jesus for a while. Jesus, who was standing up to authority, standing up, standing up and standing with those who had no power. Jesus, who was intentionally and deliberately working to upend systems of oppression. And Jesus, who focused on God's movement toward justice in an unjust world. The modern American church, for much of its history, has been a dominant cultural force, certainly a far cry from the threats that Jesus faced and stood up against. Indeed, in many ways, our attempt to avoid anger completely has led us down the wrong road. 
the road we are trying to avoid, the road that takes us away from God, down a path of sin. African-American theologian Howard Thurman wrote the book Jesus and the Disinherited in 1949. This is the book. While he was writing as a black man in the post-World War II era, he could be writing about the church today and about our world. Thurman writes in Jesus and the Disinherited, many and varied are the interpretations dealing with the teachings and life of Jesus of Nazareth. But few of these interpretations deal with what the teachings and the life of Jesus have to say to those who stand at a moment in human history with their backs against the wall. He continues, to those who need profound succor and strength to enable them to live in the present with dignity and creativity, Christianity often has been sterile and of little avail. The conventional Christian world, uh, conventional Christian word is muffled, confused, and vague. Too often the price exacted by our society for security and respectability is that the Christian movement in its formal expression must be on the side of the strong against the weak. Thurman goes on to observe that Christianity, the movement that Jesus started, was born out of persecution and suffering. But then it became, throughout much of the world and most definitely in our nation, the dominant and powerful cultural force. The ambivalent nature of the church toward injustice and the, the church's displeasure with the concept of anger and of passion has led us to be measured even with the way we approach our world today. We are thoughtful, decent, and do things in good order. Thurman points out that this is counter to the way that Jesus lived, counter to the way that Jesus calls us to live and the church to exist in the world, especially in the face of injustices that should stir in us an anger that brings us to action. Our gospel lesson this morning from John chapter 2 finds similarities in the scenes that appear in the three other Gospels. It's in, in all four Gospels. In John's Gospel, as Rogers read, Jesus enters the temple area, and we, we don't know what specifically causes him to respond the way he does that day. But what we know is that he made a whip out of cords and drove the vendors and the money changers from the temple. Often, this text is mistakenly taught or interpreted as though the presence of these vendors is the equivalent of someone coming into our sanctuary and selling some unrelated items in the church. But this isn't the case. They were, they were providing ordinary services to those coming into the temple. They were providing them the things they needed to worship. And so what we know is that Jesus was standing in opposition to something more than the sales behavior of these specific individuals. He was declaring that something was wrong with this system, even though it was acting in the way that it was acting for a long time. Something needed to change, that the purpose of the temple had gotten confused that the system as it was needed to change. Professor Amy Jill Levine writes that there are times we may find that business as usual 
is not only inappropriate, it is obscene. And this is what Jesus is reacting to here. This happens again when Jesus is confronted by Pharisees for healing a man on the Sabbath, which wasn't allowed under the religious rules. In Mark 3, 5, we read that Jesus looked around at them, these religious leaders who were questioning him. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus then heals the man. No more business as usual. The consistent theme in the anger expressed by Jesus is the relationship between his anger and injustice and then action. Theologian James H. Cohn writes about his experience as a black man attempting to navigate injustices he experienced in the 1960s in the South, while also attempting to fit into a theological academy that was dominated almost exclusively by white males. Cohn writes, no longer able to accept black invisibility in theology and getting angrier and angrier at the white brutality meted against Martin King and other civil rights activists, my Southern Arkansas racial identity began to rise in my theological consciousness. Like a dormant volcano, it soon burst forth in a manner that exceeded my intellectual control. Cohn then tells the story of standing up to racial injustice in his university. First, out of anger toward a professor he loved, but anger driven by his experience of injustice, injustices that weren't changing. Cohn acknowledges that his theology, a theology that until his death in 2018 had as a purpose the goal of turning the tables on the oppression of African Americans in American society, Cohn's theology was formed out of his anger and the anger of others. The anger was a catalyst for change. He writes, the prophetic and angry voices of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X together revolutionized theological thinking in the African-American community. Cone's anger and the anger of King and countless others found a connection with Jesus. Jesus who stood in the way of oppression and sought liberation. Cone writes that the work of Jesus is essentially one of liberation. Through Christ, the poor are offered freedom now to rebel against that which makes them other than human. The church must find the motivation to seek out injustice in the world. And friends, we should. We must get angry when we see the poor, the downtrodden, the persecuted, and the oppressed. We then take that anger and we translate it into being the church that Christ desires us to be. As Cone puts it, the church is that people who have been called into being by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that they can bear witness to Jesus's lordship by participating with him in the struggle of freedom. We read throughout scripture that anger must be avoided when it leads to sin, but to avoid anger can also be our sin. And anger can also be a way, a way for us to seek alignment with Christ. It can lead us to action, to action 
that Jesus describes in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. When we seek to be followers of Christ, ones who seek to see the world as Christ sees the world, anger is inevitable. Anger toward injustice, anger toward impressive, uh, oppressive laws and policies, anger toward systems and people who are driven by greed and hate at the expense of others. What tables need to be overturned? This Lent, perhaps, this is the question. The question and the lens through which you might look at the world. Where would Jesus fashion a whip today? Where would Jesus be angry? You know, we often talk about the church needing to be relevant to people in order to bring new folks or to keep our our kids engaged to sustain them on the faith journey. But this really misses the point. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it is relevant. It is relevant to all of us. Drawing closer to the God who created you in the divine image, all of us in the divine image, this has never lost its relevance in our lives. And it really isn't dependent on the success of the church. God will be God. The church, though, needs to be passionately and deliberately relevant to that good news, rejecting hypocrisy and sin that draws us into comfort, comfort that draws us into being the good, quiet Christians. For the church to be and remain relevant to the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the the church to become and be relevant to the gospel, the church, we must be what Jesus lived and modeled. The place and the people, as Howard Thurman prophetically challenged, the the place and the people who are looking for what the teachings and the life of Jesus have to say to those who stand at a moment in human history with their backs against the wall. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.